Hello, friends, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Tande Cotillo. If you missed part one, I would definitely recommend listening to that one first. You can find part one in episode 40 of the podcast. In part two, we talked about RIC, or Risk Intensity Complexity, as a tool for communicating about difficulty in climbing and about the appropriate responses to different types of bouldering challenges that we can use as climbers. We talked about the value and importance of route setting in a growing industry. We talked about standardizing route setting qualifications and safety training. And we talked about a project called The Lab that Tande has been involved with through the bouldering projects to provide coaching and training for route setters and athletes. If you stick around after the episode, you'll find a short bonus conversation. Tande and I were talking offline after the interview, and I just happened to still be recording. And we each talked about some of our current projects at the time, and Tande had a request for me with the podcast that I found really insightful and that I wanted to share with all of you, basically about keeping training in perspective as we pursue better climbing. I've got another follow-up call coming later this week, this time with Drew Ruana about his recent V16s and about his process projecting the Grand Illusion, a new V16 that Nathaniel Coleman ultimately did the first ascent of earlier this year. I'll put out another teaser for that one so you guys can continue to get a feel for what the follow-ups are all about and what to expect if you sign up for Patreon. If you want to learn more about follow-ups, you can go to thenuggetclimbing.com and you should find a big announcement right there on the homepage. Thank you guys for tuning in, as always, and for all the support, financial and otherwise. I truly appreciate it. Please enjoy this insightful part two with Tande Katia. You touched on RIC. I'd love yeah. to expand on that. What is RIC and how does it play into your coaching? So RIC is, um, so the, the it's an acronym, RIC. It stands for Risk Intensity Complexity. And it's a tool that initially, uh, when I started root setting and I decided I wanted to become a professional at it, I really wanted to be very good at it. And one of the things that frustrated me was immensely was when I tried to set a route that, you know, I was asked by the headsetter to set a 6B and I always missed that grade on my first go. It was either a little too hard or a little too easy or, and I was like, well, what the hell is going on? You know, if you're a, you know, if you're a professional at something, you know what it is. And so what ensued is maybe five years of research. Um, essentially every route setting job I did, I just had this huge spreadsheet where I would try and record all these, this data about times, hmm. um, hold size, hold type, angle, movement style, grade, you know, um, number of holds, all kinds of crazy things, trying to look for a pattern that would help me understand, like, how do I nail my job and be like really, really good at it. That is fascinating. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to understand, you know, yeah. and the conclusion was that it just doesn't work because <laughs> grades by and large are an indication, but the, the development of grades is really steeped in the culture 
of climbing, all the different places, all the different stories of people like pouring castor oil on each other's holds and chopping bolts and, you know, and one-upping each other. So from area to area and for various reasons, you know, like areas that have softer grades to encourage, you know, tourism and development, there's the, the, the purpose of grades is really complicated and nebulous. And so essentially what I grew to understand is that if I wanted to be a good root setter, it was a, effectively a bad tool because it was too, there was too much fluctuation and variation, even if grades are still important, you know, and they play, a, they play and will continue to play a huge part in the development of our sport as a benchmark, as a reference, as, you know, um, as a root setter, they're not very useful. And truthfully, like, Many, many World Cups are set. I've set lots of World Cups where we haven't uttered grade once. Mm. You know, we just uh, have a sense, you know, of what is hard for this particular group of climbers or what is easy or, you know. And then what happened is once I gained that sense and I was able to understand and express it, I also understood that it was something that wasn't verbalized. It was something that just like, well, you knew because you just gained experience and it was a, a feeling that you had. And so I wanted to formalize it a little bit because I wanted to teach it and communicate it to other people. And among all those millions of columns in my spreadsheet, Jackie and actually Laurent Laporte helped me zoom in on a couple, which were uh, risk and intensity. And they actually did a really interesting game back in their, like, the years where they were like the strongest climbers on the planet or among that group anyway, where they were interested in finding the single hardest move in the forest of Fontainebleau. <laughs> so they were just trying to like figure it out, you know, what is the single hardest move? And they failed the same way I failed because there's too much variation in climbing. Hmm. Like basically a move is deemed hard or difficult for lots of different reasons. One is like, it's hard to repeat. One is it's like, like physically really hard to do. One requires precision. One requires, so how do you compare, you know, an apple to an orange, to a kiwi, to a pineapple, <laughs> and then say, well, which one is the best or which one's the sweetest or which one's the hardest or. So zooming into these three sort of aspects, risk, intensity, and complexity, I did actually find a pattern that I found was interesting. Hmm. So the really short version of how it works is RIC is a three-digit number. So you associate it to, this is really interesting, it's, it's relative. So you associate it either to a group of people or to a grade or to, um, well, let's just start with those so we don't get too spread out. So in a competition, a classic example is in a youth competition, you use the same set of boulders for two categories say, you know, uh, youth A girls and then junior girls, which is possible. Or youth B girls or, and junior. So they're 20, uh, 13, 14-year-olds and then, you know, 18, 19-year-olds. Okay. And so the boulders are not changing. So the grades don't change. At the same time, the experience those climbers are going to have because of their age, because of their size, because of the amount of training and climbing experience they have will be different. Mm -hmm. RIC... Uh, tries to address how challenging, how risky something will be for a given group. So the RIC would change for the groups where the grades don't. So it, it just helps you understand. Basically, it tries to answer the question of why is something difficult? Hmm. And 
the answer always has to be connected to, well, who is it difficult for? And RIC is really interesting because it um, it addresses the ability of climbers. You know, you do RIC for a group of indoor cl- people who've been climbing for the same amount of time, but some have been climbing indoors and some have been climbing outdoors. You'll come up with different numbers because their ability to stand on a small foot or the indoor climbers will be really good at doing dinos and coordination moves and all these crazy things where, you know, outdoor climbers will be better on like small footholds and crimping and patience. And so depending on what type of climb you're asking them to do, you try to anticipate what their experience is going to be like Hmm. and what, what part is going to be difficult for them. So RIC risk intensity, complexity, each gets a number from one to five. So you get a three-digit number, which sounds like two, four, three. <laughs> and it's a tool that I've been using to... Um, I think it's important to specify, not to measure difficulty, but to communicate about difficulty, because that's okay. really the goal. That's the only thing I'm really interested in, is having the conversations that root setters have be constructive. And if you ask them, okay, well, why is it difficult? Well, this V2... I think is uh, you know is a very high risk boulder, and the person on the other side who wants to make a change thinks it's a very high intensity boulder, and then we'll talk about well imagine somebody who's V two and maybe I don't know we can we actually have an example in the gym or you know maybe one of the two root setters has a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who climbs around that grade, and we'll be well imagine if you know. Your boyfriend, Joe, was climbing on it. He's a, you know, kind of a beginner. He's been climbing for not so long. What would his experience be? And then suddenly it becomes more real. Hmm. This is, you know, another tool is athletic empathy. So trying to imagine what this person is going to be able to feel and how that climb is going to feel to them, including, again, the emotion and the mental part. The hard move is really high off the deck. If you're not very experienced climber, that's a deal breaker. You will see it all the time in the gym. People climb up there. They, like, try it. They see that they have to, like, you know, lurch or push or, and they're like, this is not for me. And they just bail, they mm. jump off. And so that plays, it's part of the grade. It's part of what makes that climb difficult. The hard part is at the top. So even if they have intrinsically the ability to do the move, then they won't do it because, uh, because it's high off the deck and they can't handle it yet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's the medium length explanation of RIC. <laughs> <laughs> is, is RIC just a tool for root setters or is it also important for athletes to be able to understand that if they're going into competition? I don't think it's in- important for them to understand that. I've you know really developed it mainly for root setters. But then a lot of the jobs I did training camps, I was doing two things at the same time. I was teaching the root setters who I was setting the training camp with. Mm. So I was using these tools and explaining these ideas but then there's a couple of training camps that i did um i i did this with the scandinavian teams so we we did athletes from finland norway sweden a few times we organized training camps in in all of those countries and we did this thing where the root setters had ric values for the boulders and then we asked the athletes to come up with our we explained the system and asked them as a group to come up with RIC values for each boulder in you know like a given semi-final round 
and then try to have a conversation between the root setters and the athletes to get them to understand each other in a way hmm. um, and see what the differences they came up with. Because at the end of the day, root setters just speculate, right? We mm-hmm. guess. We try and imagine what that reality is going to be like, but it's just a guess. And I tell root setters this all the time. The truth is the climbers. Like you can not like it if you want, or you can feel like they botched it or, but the reality is if you set the boulder too hard on certain aspect and nobody got off the ground, you did something wrong. Hmm. And so instigating that conversation felt like really interesting because I was lucky enough to be with a really, you know, dynamic and intelligent group of both setters and athletes who had the bandwidth to have that conversation. And it was amazing. And I think, (laughs) uh, I think there is an application for this RIC tool, maybe not as granular for athletes, but I have developed this idea and I developed this, I I did it, um, I managed to apply it with the Canadian youth team, uh, actually both the adult and the youth team, explaining the RIC system to them at the beginning and then explaining this idea that when we ask a risk dominant question, there's an appropriate response to it. So if you can identify each of the different sort of trends as a dominant in the boulder, then you can adapt both your attitude and your effort Hmm. to that boulder problem. And this is particularly, particularly true if the boulder feels like above your head, you know, it's like, there's no wiggle room for you to like, try and try and try until you figure it, figure it out. This is a boulder. Like, you know, the harder it is, the more this becomes relevant. So, in a nutshell, if it's a risk-based problem, a risk question, usually the answer is commit. Mm-hmm. Risk, uh, I guess I didn't give the definition. Risk is, is a little hard to understand. And I just want to specify when I say risk, I absolutely don't mean there's no, the, the, the worst outcome of a risky boulder is you just come off the boulder, you fall. Uh, in a completely safe and unharmed way because, you know, Alex Honnold does risk. I don't do any of that risk. Mm -hmm. Like when I set boulders indoors, I completely think it's unnecessary to create any situations where there's a potential for injury Mm -hmm. or harm. So we're definitely not talking about that. And it's more like to what extent it's like an out of control move or sequence. Well, that's the basic understanding. Okay. Um, and when I used to explain risk before, I just explained it as um, I would just give examples of what are risky situations. So typically, dinos, when you have a precision dead point to a mail slot or to a pocket and you keep like hitting the edges around it, uh, that usually is, uh, involves a lot of risk. Being on a very bad foot uh, is, is risk. But the better definition is it is a mental challenge. Okay. So... The reality of risk is a lot of the times risky moves are moves you've done them before many times even, but you're not guaranteed to do it again. Mm. And there's also no physical limitation necessarily. It's not necessarily far away. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, this big, it can be a big coordination jump or a big thing, but it can also just be like, like I said, standing on a a really bad foot is a risky move. Mm. And the appropriate energy or intention you have to put into it is commitment, right? You have to believe this is going to work and you have to put the energy and the effort into doing it the right way. Like you believe it's going to work. And that's the trick. That's what makes it work Hmm. is you believing in it. And it's not, it doesn't have to do with being stronger or being, you know, 
it's the hardest one to understand and usually takes a little bit of time to absorb the concept of risk. Uh, intensity is the easiest one to understand. It's basically just being strong enough, you okay. know, having the physical ability to do a move. And then complexity is how it's basically the beta. Like if you know how to do it, it's easier. If you don't know how to do it and you're fumbling around, it becomes more difficult. So, you know, examples of that are like, well, if you know to do uh, a heel hook around the corner or hand foot match in this particular spot, then the move is way easier than any other way. And if you can figure that out by yourself, well, you're good to go. So each climb has a mix and a composition of this. And if the competitor can find the right response, then I think it can be useful to them. Is there a, a clear response for each of the three if you have a yes. really dominant boulder? What, what is the response for intensity as far as the attitude? Pull harder. <laughs> Just, <fucking laughs> Just try as hard as you can. Bear down. But it's also interesting because if it's an intensity boulder and you have a limited amount of time, for example, it also is an indication to like um, uh, be very mindful of your rest. Mm. Because what it means is like if you've got five minutes and you give 20 tries, well... You know, basically your your first three. The the rule of thumb is like if you're in a competition, like a World Cup competition or a competition that's your level, the rule of thumb is you basically can't give more than three good tries. Mm. Mm-hmm. Between the time it takes, between you know uh, how much uh, energy you have to expend, all the things and the rest you have you need in between. Um, but it's a, it's just a rule of thumb. It's you know it's very coarse. Lots of people have topped you know on the sixth try or, but strategically, if you know it's a hyper physical boulder, pulling on on your third try, you should expect it to feel like shit. Mm. You should expect to be like tired. It doesn't mean it doesn't go, but if you know, okay, I know exactly what to do now, so that's an advantage. But the disadvantage is that hold isn't going to feel as good anymore, and this pinch when I jump to it isn't going to feel as bomber and it's going to require an extra effort, well, just knowing that information is helpful, right? Hmm. So, yeah, risk I talked about, usually it's committing. Whatever you try, just try it as if the gospel depends on it. It is 100% <laughs> going to work, you know. Uh, fake it till you make it, all the things. It's really, it's in your head. Hmm. Um, intensity, you bear down, you put more energy into it, and then... Um, be mindful of your rest. And then complexity, uh, the trick is to think, you know, try and be intelligent and think from the ground if you can, if you can afford to. And it highlights one of my favorite skills in climbing that gets talked about the least. It's imagination. Hmm. Coming up with beta, the ability to find a physical movement solution is yeah is the ability a climber has of imagining something and making it happen with their bodies and that's one of the coolest ones to me so think from the ground just meaning try to figure out the beta before you jump onto the wall yeah use your brain yeah okay and you know so uh, typically it's a good idea to move around the boulder because it helps to get a sense of perspective and a sense of dimension and you know then you have to pick something you don't know if it's going to work. Try it as hard as you can. And then from the information you got from either the success or the failure of that attempt, then you have to process it. And And some people are very good at that. In climbing, all the people who are good on-siders are really good at, at dealing with that idea. Mm-hmm. So particularly, there's certain places, you know, certain crags are notoriously 
more difficult to do on-sites. Um, rifle, you know, hidden holds and quirky knee bars and, <laughs> and you know, to the extent that people almost have given up on sighting and rifle uh, because, you know, it's like, well, if you don't know that, like, it's super easy and it's frustrating. Like, if you're, you can be a V13 climber and fall on the 511. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's actually possible. But I think it's a cool game to play still. And I always try. <laughs> always try to on site everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Take a page out of your book. Tande, when you and I were communicating back and forth, we were uh, emailing, and just in the last week, you sent me a really interesting email, a very heartfelt and very well-thought-out email about this conversation that we were going to have, and you were kind of wrestling with what it was that you really wanted to say, and, Uh you know, it's funny, there's a short little quote from you, I won't read the whole email, even though I'd, I'd love to, but... In that email, you wrote, I make fake climbing for a living. Why on earth would anyone want to hear what I have to say? <laughs> you know, it's a fact. Yeah. <laughs> we could ask Margo and, and Sean and Nathan. Yeah. But yeah, there was clearly something that, that was really, you know, pressing on you to talk about and something that you felt was really important to, to talk about. And I'd love to dig into that with you. Sure. Um. So when you reached out, I guess the first time I was struggling with the idea of, you know, I try and be mindful with what I communicate about and I'm not really interested in being famous. Um, and if you, if you look at, you know, the stuff I've been interviewed about or when I did a video, there's always a purpose to it. And a lot of the effort and intention I've put into my communication has been around like expressing and exposing new ideas or, you know, important ideas about route setting, because I really want setting to grow and become a really, I think it can be a really good profession if the industry allows for that to happen. And so when you reached out and I kind of like, you know, scanned through the other people who'd been on this podcast, who are many of whom are like climbing legends, heroes of mine, uh, the list is pretty long, but a lot of people who I admire, I felt very out of place. I'm like, I have never climbed a 514. I'm an unremarkable climber at best. And why would anything I say actually, you know, matter in this realm where, you know, as a climber, I was really interested to hear from Bill Ramsey and, you know, uh, Jonathan Segrist. And, you know, I, I'm passionate about climbing and the stories they have to tell, you know, really grab me. And I was like, uh, you know, it feels like I'm just doing it because I can. And, you know, I, it's, it's always exciting that people are interested in you. And, but does that mean you should talk about, you know, yourself or all these topics? And why is it interesting? And uh, really in the process of you kind of, uh, kind of nosing your way into trying to interview me. And I, again, thank you and admire your persistence. Um, it forced me to like address again, this question, like, why is this, why does this bother you so much? Like, why is it such a big deal? And it occurred to me that I basically as a setter, as a maker of fake climbing, I I probably low key have an inferiority complex Hmm. in the realm of climbing because it's fake climbing, you know, 
it's never been taken that seriously by the people, you know, or by the, not by the people, but by the place I come from in climbing, you know, it's, it's practice climbing, you know, I take it very seriously and I'm passionate about it. And I try very hard to make the connection between the real rock climbing that I do and the experiences that people will feel when they climb. You know, that's why I'm interested in this emotional idea. You can climb these pieces of plastic and these blocks of wood and, you know, you can feel, oh, intimidation and challenge and, and excitement and accomplishment uh, the same way you do when you are outside. So sure, it's an abstraction, but the emotions are still real. But at the same time, uh, from an industry perspective, I don't get that feedback. You know, uh, I on the years that I work a lot, uh, like not like this year, but I go through. You know, I can go through ten to fifteen pairs of climbing shoes a year. I have to pay for all of those, hmm. and I I've tried multiple times to get sponsorship. And no one's interested in outdoor, like plastic climbing. Oh, sorry, no. Like we, you know, we're more interested in the outdoors. That's more our image, our brand, our this, our that. So it just occurred to me um, that root setting just doesn't get taken that seriously in the realm of, you know, climbing. And I wanted to speak up for that. I think there, you know, that every... At the same time, every new generation of every new version of climbing has had to deal with that. You know, uh, when sport climbing appeared, all the alpinists like looked down their nose at like, what? You're putting on the drawers. You're like wrapping down from above. You're, <laughs> you're putting bolts in the rock. That's blasphemy. That's, you know, and then, you know, then sport climbing was the thing and people went bouldering and it's like, that's ridiculous. You climb like, <laughs> you know, little tiny rocks and every generation kind of like looked down on the next and I feel like maybe, you know, plastic or fake climbing is, is in kind of maybe that transition where it's coming into its own. I mean, hell, it's in the Olympics now. There's like, it's probably the biggest community of climbers, you know, mm. indoor climbing. So it has to like, okay, sort of like take its shoulders. And, but at the same time, I want to speak out for root setters everywhere who are struggling with motivation because they work so much, whose bodies are falling apart because they're you know, trying to put up whatever num crazy number of climbs the, the gym requires and, you know, making all these sacrifices out of the passion and the love for climbing originally. And, you know, they can't, they're not making livable wages. They're, you know, burning out their, blowing out their elbows and, and basically not getting much respect for it, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, because again, I'm in this position of privilege where I'm basically at the top of that pyramid. You know, I've set every possible imaginable comp in the world. I, you know, I get called to go to, you know, set in Japan and set in Sweden and set in all these cool places. And I've had the, you know, the opportunity to meet and like, I've done it all. Honestly, as a setter, I have nothing to complain about. You know, I, and I work for this amazing company that believes in my vision and basically dream situation. And yet... I still feel, you know, like for all of the people who do what I do, there's so many people who are just not considered enough and who do the grunt work. And honestly, if every setter in the U.S. right now was like, you know what, we're going to take a break for six months and do something else, the gym industry doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. One of the things the pandemic revealed is what are essential workers who, you know, 
And the truth is, essential workers, for us to continue to exist as humankind, as, you know, in this society, is people who make our food, people who deliver it, people who take care of our health, and people who teach our children. And all of those people are the worst paid people, hmm. right? There's no third grade teacher making, you know, $350,000 a year because she's so amazing at her job, but there should be because it's literally one of the most important jobs in the world. But there is a CFO making that amount of money to, you know, to make 2% more for some huge corporation that essentially is going to do that by cutting jobs of delivery people or whatever, replacing people with computers. So again, trying to make that contact, that connection between the real world and what's happening in climbing. And I thought it would be, you know, I found that emotion in myself and I thought it would be cool to speak to it and say, you know, to anyone who listens to us, who is involved in the industry and, you know, set us out there. Yeah, we do need more credit. Uh, and setters are not irreproachable. We have been fucking pirates and absolute shitheads at time and, you know, creative nightmares to manage. And we're definitely imperfect. But again, this industry is growing up. And I think if we wanted to go in a good place, especially from like this idea that we wanted to be a place for people to meet climbing and for the climbing to be a cool part of their lives, we need to do better for setters. So yeah, that's an idea I wanted to share and talk about because it's, it's, it's really near and dear to my heart. You shared a couple of articles with me from the restaurant industry, mm -hmm. one of which was really just highlighting what you just spoke to that, you know, most of these people that are in a, what we call a critical role aren't being compensated, you know, even enough to be able to live off of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you shared another article that was really promising that showed kind of like a new and better way. One example of a, a restaurant that was doing things differently and paying people better and just paying that, that credit and respect to their employees. Yeah. Do you have a vision for what, for what route setting could be or, or how the, the indoor climbing industry could be better? I mean, I think it's going to start with a bit more, uh, the way I, I spoke to, I spoke to this with some colleagues the other day and I said, we have the option of making a better version of capitalism. Hmm. You know, I think, this idea, this model we have where there's a few really rich people and then a whole bunch of us running to like keep running and pretending that we're going to catch up with them, you know, is really unrealistic and stupid. And people are obscenely rich. There's some people who are obscenely, obscenely rich for no good reason. They're just sitting on piles of money that could do tons of good to lots of people but they just keep it for themselves. And that's like, it's a shitty version of capitalism. Capitalism doesn't have to be a bad concept. And again, I think we're a young industry and we're, you know, there's a lot of young and motivated people. It's passion driven. Um, I think we can do a better version. We can, we can play into that, you know, uh, and produce a better version. And it starts, I think with people, you know, uh, a notoriously broken relationship in climbing gyms in my experience has been like headsetter GM, 
you know, mm. relationships where it's just like, oh, they want us to do this. You know, it's them versus us all the time. And again, I'm not going to like write setters off, myself included. We haven't always been, you know, the most diplomatic and the most, and our passion has made us, you know, push things too far at times. But I'm really urging everyone to like, let's talk about this. There's a middle ground where, you know, our creativity and the energy and the passion that we bring can be a real asset for the gym as long as it's in exchange for something that's balanced and healthy. And somebody told me, somebody asked me if they had in today, somebody asked me, do you have any advice? I'm going to become a head root setter today. And I said, don't do it. Wow. Honestly, I, I, I disadvise people to become a root setter. It's tragic because I'm so passionate about it, but the industry doesn't treat root setters well. Like so many setters I know are injured, are heartbroken about climbing, are pissed at their boss. And as a result, they become bitter and they still have to do the job. So they produce this really poor climbing because mm. they're, you know, doing it in poor conditions. And I'm not making this up, you know, this like stories of setters all over the, the country. And again, if I'm making fake climbing, don't you want me to make the best fake climbing I can make the one that has the most flavor and the most and again look at the restaurant industry that's you know it's food that we eat don't you want the people who are in the kitchen making the food to be you know happy healthy and doing the job because they you know because it, it's something positive in their lives because they're going to make better food that way it's going to everything everything is better if you do, if you know someone's not being exploited in the kitchen to for you to have that delicious, whatever, salad, burger. So, yeah, I, I urge everybody, you know, setters to be more professional, be smart, be considerate of the people who you work for. And GMs and, you know, gym owners, engage in a conversation and include the setters and value their work because they produce the main product that you sell and... Uh, so improving that relationship, I think would be a good start and hopefully it leads us to a place where, yeah, like everybody, you know, the gym makes money and everybody, everybody's motivated because everybody's getting something out of it. And the flame and the passion of climbing is still being communicated. That's what we're, I mean, that's what I'm in business for. So, you know, it's awesome that I can make a living doing it, but I did it for years, like almost half my career, I did it for no money. You know, hmm. uh, the, my, for all my formative years, the 10 first years I was a setter, I never got paid. Oh, I did wow. it anyway. Hours and hours of like lugging crates around, standing on ladders and being there until midnight to put the tape and labels on and all these things. And I know that's true of so many setters who are out there, you know, love of the craft. And it's a real craft, a real thing that you can become really good at. And, and it's a, it's a gift. It's like music, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's something that we have to understand. It's not just mechanical. There's things like, you know, like the flavor in the seasoning or the, it's about feeling that's what setters can produce. And that's what makes climbing feel really nice. So, yeah, I hope, I hope we go in that direction. A lot of us are working towards that. Um, and I'm going to try and be more brave about hmm. about speaking out as a setter and 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 owning owning that which even for me 
with my resume is still not easy. Hmm. Um, I, I feel like I'm defending myself uh, still a lot of the time. So, so yeah, and this is the future of climbing. And if, if gyms fuck it up, it means we fuck it up for the biggest group of people who are doing it right now, which means it's like fucking up nutrition. Imagine that a whole generation of kids and people brought up on like the worst possible food. And we know what that does. We know what that leads to. It'll be expensive. It'll be sad. It'll be, and it'll be a lot less fun when it can be something that is healthy and positive in people's lives. Um, so, but we can't just assign value only to money. There's value in craft. There's value in intention. There's value in vision beyond just the bottom line. And setters are at an awkward and uncomfortable conjuncture with all of that. Think about this. It's a Soon to be, I've heard on CBJ, soon to be a billion dollar industry, right? Mm-hmm. The, indus- the indoor industry is, I think we're at 947 million in value. Uh, and there's, you know, there's no, I just said, there's no root, there's no climbing gyms without root setters. And there's also zero formal training for root setters. There's zero safety regulations specifically for setting. How, how, how is that? It's not possible. So something's broken. Something's not right. I chalk it up to we're a young industry and we grow in, we, we grow in spurts like teenagers. <laughs> and, and so we're right now kind of an awkward teenager and we're at that age where, yeah, we, there's a couple of things we need to take a little more seriously and pay more attention to. If we want to have like a lasting relationship with this lady, we're going to have to, you know, we can't just bro it out all the time. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to have to be more responsible about this whole thing. So, um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Absolutely, thank you so much for for opening up and for sharing all that. Uh-huh. As, as far as the formal education and and safety training and all that sort of stuff, I know that that's something that you're working on. Yeah. But, is that something you want to talk about here as well? Sure, if you're if you're interested. Absolutely. Tell me about the lab. Um, so the lab is, I mean, it's just um, by and large, the lab is. Um, I kind of wanted to have something like a project to bring together all the development work that I want to do around root setting specifically, but the truth is it expands to the idea of trying to make climbing better. So my idea is this, if we want good climbing, we need to train good people, but we also have to have channels to communicate the culture. There's kids today who don't know who Ron Kauk is or who, you know, don't know why the V scale is called, you know, uh, why the V scale is called that. Why is it a V? And because there's so many more people involved in the game, the way that um, uh, stewardship occurred, you know, before you went climbing, it's because somebody took you out climbing. Somebody who knew at least a little bit more than you did um, <laughs> doesn't mean that they always knew enough. But um, but in general, you know, there was that sort of human connection. But now you basically have, you can just go to a climbing camp by yourself and just pick it up and so you miss out on, you know, hearing about these epic stories about, you know, 
the relationship or the history or and in the lab i was hoping to sort of encompass all of those things education again like i said is one of big you know it's one of the the things that my mom taught me to value a lot and i really thank her for that um she dragged my disgruntled teenage butt through uh school high school and even you know shoved me off to university and and i'm really grateful for for that experience and the value you know again it was a privilege that i i had and um i i really believe in that idea of like sharing ideas in a in a structured intelligent way engaging in conversation with people and passing ideas along so so the lab is hopefully a a project that can that can make that happen so far you know it's kind of just naturally out of the training camps we were talking about earlier on trying to to bring that into some some sort of a cohesive project that basically includes training route setters for either for working in climbing gyms or setting in competitions but also training athletes and helping them you know perform better and understand themselves and you know provide not just pure physical coaching but additional stuff and experience and conversations about you know the things that affect their performance and then even better creating the intersection between those things so for example if you organize a route setting course where you teach people how to set you know boulders for a high end competition i don't feel i can say at the end of the course wow you guys did an amazing job these boulders are perfect because i judge so that's not how climbing works again like i said earlier on the truth comes from the climbers so then the trick is then you use those boulders as a mock comp for example so that's a cool training opportunity for athletes but then oh you know the route setters get really uh, genuine feedback on questions that they asked or tweaks that they made or so you know it's doing the individual things but it's also trying to find the cross section and creating you know synergy and just you know just keeping that stoke the mm. the the excitement route setting is really fun if you've seen like you know a bunch of route setters having you know having a good time there's something really positive about that and it plays against us it's like you know well <laughs> we're not going to just pay you to like lie on the mats and giggle all the time but at the same time you know i believe if there's happiness in the route setting is it like an invisible force that holds it into the wall and people feel that when they come and climb and they're enjoying these boulders that people had so much fun making hmm. um as long as it's done with you know care and intention uh it comes out so i think you know that's that's true to climbing and i'd like to see that continue to grow and expand um especially with like all these young setters who are like super motivated and you know want to get after it i'm like yeah let's get after it and this is you know sure it's a hard job it's physical and but there's also moments where you just have such a good time and you know you discover these cool moves and oh look what so and so said and everybody mobs the move and try and figure it out and that excitement is the genuine you know it's the experience of climbing people outside feel the same thing and so So yeah, the lab is a place to put that energy through vacuum tubes and figure out how to <laughs> <laughs> amplify it and and share it with as many people as possible and exa- again pipe it back into the industry as like, you know, a source of inspiration and make sure that the climbing industry has the industry part of it, but it has a ton and 
ton of the climbing part in it too. Mm. So yeah, I did last year, we did, I think four courses that were labeled under the lab project, um, at bouldering project gyms. So we taught root setting courses, um, for three of them. And then one of them in Minneapolis was really cool. It was, um, thanks to the coach there, uh, Tyler Williams, great guy, uh, doing super good work with his, his youth teams. We organized a training camp for youth athletes, uh, again, to prepare them for international competitions. A few of them were going to head out to worlds that year. Others weren't, but were just interested in growing in that field. And so, yeah, we set, you know, boulders that were in a really challenging style term and basically got them to climb mock comps and work in groups on different aspects. And we tried to get some, you know, nutritional information in there and um, supplied meals from, you know, local companies who just made healthy food, you know. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. And uh, we tried to work on, you know, mental and emotional situations. We worked on flexibility and Mercedes Paul Meyer, who was a mm. coach at SBP at the time and now has her own project, uh, Modus Athletica. Shout out to her for the amazing work she's done. And she came and supported and helped with movement training and getting, you know, kids to understand their body. And again, prepare these kids to be athletes, you know, and have all the tools that they need. Um, and it was amazing. It was like so much good energy. Um, I worked with Ayoso Peju, who was head root setter at MVP at the time and yeah, just exposing them to like new and interesting ideas and oh man, such a good time. (laughs) So yeah, those were the four projects and then there was supposed to be like a whole nother wave of them this year Okay, um, with escalation. But unfortunately COVID put, uh, put a a pause on that for the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful to Bouldering Project to, in spite of all that, still believe in the project and the lab. And, you know, they said as soon as we can get back to the operations that um, that would sustain it, then we'll kick the, the lab back in back into action. So, all right. Yeah. That, that's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to see how this thing grows. I, yeah. I know you can't speak to specific plans or anything with the lab, but is there like a resource I could point people to so they can stay up to date on it? And if there's any root setters or athletes listening that are, that are interested in learning more about it? Sure. I mean, for the moment, so we have several websites uh, for the bouldering project. So we have one for each gym, but we also have a central hub. That's just boulderingproject.com. Okay. And there's a lab section in that website, which has a few of the resources and projects. We had a guest setter from Denmark. Uh, guest setters is a, a project that we've been doing for a long time at the Bouldering Projects to get, again, ideas and setters and energy from different places. Um, so we had setters from Japan, from France, from all kinds of places, from Germany, come and take part in that project. And so the idea is they come and they work with the setting team. But they also try and interact with our members, maybe teach a course or present a slideshow. So um, there's a video on there of Bjorn uh, Isanga from Denmark who came to set and then did a slideshow presentation on his World Cup experience because he was a member of the the Danish national team uh, for many years. So, you know, again, I think that video captures kind of some of the ideology and the reflection and the thought we try and put into our work and Bjorn is definitely like one of the like 
he's on the sharp end of the thinking of root setting. Uh, as far as I know, I'm always like super inspired by his ideas and conversation. So he's cool. There's an article that I wrote that I actually sent to you today, the ghost stories one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And then the events that we did. So we did all the promotion for the, the events. So I, that would be the resource we have for the moment. But okay. It's pretty, it's pretty dormant for the moment until we get back to get back to business. Gotcha. The, the Instagrams will also have some, some speakings of the lab work. Okay. Um, that's yeah. the bouldering project. Uh, the bouldering projects, uh, mine, okay. because I'm driving the project. And then I don't know, there was question of creating a, a lab specific one, but we don't want to create social media until it's necessary. So gotcha. Okay. For the moment, this works just fine. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. I mm-hmm. will link to all that in the show notes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I think it's probably time to start wrapping up here. I've taken a lot of your yeah. time tonight, um, Yeah, <laughs> but I could talk to you all night. This is, this has been so interesting and I'm really enjoying it. I'd love to ask you, what is something that you've been especially grateful for lately? Um, that one's easy. Like my family in particular, mm. and then specifically my wife, Elodie, who, like I said, that hasn't been working. Name. Uh, she has sacrificed so much for me to be able to do my work here. Um, she has been an amazing mother, has been instrumental in, um, you know, allowing me to travel, supporting me, believing in me and sacrificing so much. She has not worked for eight years basically Hmm. because I'm doing what I'm doing and, uh, I think it's really important to highlight, you know, um, you know, it, it's true of her. I think it's true of many women, uh, but I want to expand it to spouses in general who, you know, support their partners um, and have made sacrifices to allow their partner to flourish in their in their careers and. It's not a stretch at all to say I wouldn't have been able to do it without her, Mm. Um, including the fact that for the first two years of me being a professional root setter, I made negative money Mm. and was 100% sponsored by my wife uh, for my whole life. All the food that I ate, all the rent that I paid, every one of my phone bills was paid by my partner. So, and somehow she stuck with me. Um, (laughs) So that is really something to be incredibly grateful for. And yeah, um, there's many, many other things, but I think that is really one thing I wanted, you know, if I have a public uh, opportunity to, to, you know, express gratitude, I really want to direct it to my partner and all partners, you know, uh, we underestimate how much we are able to accomplish because we're not doing it alone, you know, with or without kids. Um, there's often a special person who helps us do things. So that's who my shout out goes to today. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something that you're uh, ex- excited about right now? It can be related to climbing or, or not. I am excited about honestly climbing. Awesome. Uh, one of the weird twists of, um, so again, a byproduct of me being a root setter is that 
I sacrificed my climbing for the past eight years, basically. Hmm. I have spent very, very little climbing time climbing for myself. I traded that for incredible opportunities to work with amazing athletes, to set world championships in Paris, which probably was one of the most incredible climbing competitions in history at this point. So, you know, fair deal, fair trade. But with COVID and with, you know, uh, shuffling around my responsibilities uh, for the moment, I've had a window where I can focus on my own climbing again a little bit. And I absolutely love climbing. Um, And this is a shameless plug, but uh, listening to your podcasts has also sort of reconnected me to, because I haven't been hanging out at crags and spending, you know, I used to do this, you know, go camping and spend hours, you know, at the foot of a project in a down jacket, warming my hands on like some Bunsen burner or some crazy gas stove. And I was in contact with all of these people and, you know, just sucking up this vibe that I just haven't been in contact with for years now because I've been a dad and because I've been a professional setter. And, um, and then hearing from, you know, stories from all of these people, has really yeah helped stoke my psych kind of the same way that those old climbing movies did for us back in the day the <laughs> rampages and the <laughs> big in japans and all of those so thank you also for creating really high quality media and uh yeah fanning the stoke well that is that is so cool i have a huge smile on my face right now so Mm -hmm. thank you and i'm super happy to hear that yeah well tande i we haven't even met in person yet and this is only the second conversation really that we've had but i've i've already come to admire you so much and i've learned a lot each time i've i've talked to you and i really admire your ability to voice your ideas so clearly you clearly take time to organize your thoughts and you're such a clear thinker and you're able to communicate those and it really helps the rest of us learn from your life experiences so thank you so much and and thanks for sharing your thoughts with us well thank you thanks for again giving my voice a bit of amplification here and um and i look forward to meeting and hopefully maybe climbing together i hope so uh that'd be really cool i love little si so oh yeah i'm sure there'll be an opportunity it's my local crag, so I have a love-hate relationship with it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At, at the moment, I'm psyched. Uh, but fortunately, the region has lots of other places to go. Yeah, so, very cool. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you again. And I guess talk to you soon. Last question. Yes. Do you have a, uh, a new album or a latest album that you're excited about right now? I know you're a huge music buff. Um, what am I psyched on right now? Uh, the one that, um, what we, my family did during the quarantine is we, we pretended to go to live music concerts by sitting in front of our TV and watching NPR concerts. I love that. Tiny desks. (laughs) And we pretended like we were out of the show, you know, we'd like get a, get a drink and, you know, it's like, you know, and we'd be like, oh, we'd pretend like, oh, this is so great that we can go to this show with our kids. You know, usually you can't get them in the bar. And the kids were super into it. Uh, I have a two-year-old and a nine-year-old. Um, and so we discovered a few artists that we're really into. Um, okay. 
the one that I guess is on heavy rotation in the house at the moment uh, is Jordan Raquet. Okay. Uh, he's a musician, kind of soul R&B musician from um, New Zealand. Okay. Uh, and yeah, he's got like a really nice husky voice. He's got he's got a really good groove and yeah, it it goes down really nicely. Um, through a pianist that I really like called Kaifa, who's from LA. Um, I discovered a new group called Moonchild. It's not a new group. They've existed since 2011, but um, Moonchild. Um, they're a trio, I believe, from LA as well. Okay. Um, again, this is like music for quarantine time, so it's very peaceful, very funky mm. and positive and mellow. And, Perfect. Yeah. Um, the world and needs that right now. Yeah. And if you want something a little bit more gritty and a little bit more cutting edge, mm. uh, there's a jazz musician, a young, uh, I guess, keyboard musician from um, London. His name is Henry Wu, but his band is called Kamal Williams. So, okay. Yeah. And uh, he plays with a drummer called Yusef Days, and I'm really into them. And that whole collective, Tom Mish, he's a kind of more famous guy who's out of that kind of group of English musicians. So that's, that's what's playing in the house right now. I'll stop at that. Cause that's another <laughs> conversation I could go on for hours for. I can tell. But, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I'll, I'll leave well, you with those. Perfect. Yeah. I will link to all those in the show notes and I can't wait to start listening. Great. Thank all you right. very much, Stephen. Thanks Tonde. Yeah. Great talking to you. Have a great night. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 Sing one, one, two, three, three, four Cause, cause, cause No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it I wish we'd had time to get to more of your own climbing. What do you, do you have something at Little Side? Do you have like a goal? You talked about these different stages that you're working through. Sure. I mean, the old project was um, Flatliner. Oh, yeah. You know that one? I do, yeah. yeah. So Flatliner is hard because the crux is like basically the V6 at the top of like 110 feet of climbing. Mm -hmm. And I just punted on that move oh. the times that, you know, I was up there. Yeah. So it sucks because whatever you have to like get back in shape to climb up that much and it's just the nature of it is hard right mentally mm -hmm. keeping it together and then physically having the juice to so but that one's i'm less excited on it's kind of just a stepping stone um the thing i really want to do is amandla in index okay have you heard of that route um remind me what is that one so until nathan came along it was the hardest route in index okay um it's a sport route uh it's i don't know i don't know what the grade is nathan who's done it says 13 cb somewhere around there i don't know but what's interesting to me about it is just the movement that it has on it because it's very like it's index movement so it's very it's the family of movement that's usually associated to track climbing mm. uh you know corners and stemming and even though it is effectively a sport climb and the bottom section is just like kind of stemming, balancey, weird, trad-like climbing. It's got a physical boulder in the middle that is not very hard, but it pumps you out for 
an amazing layback pillar at the top that's yeah maybe 10 12 meters long like standing on these like rounded nubbins and laybacking this rounded corner okay it's just an insane line nathan got me hooked on it okay because uh, cool. just when i when we started climbing together he'd done it like recently so he talked me into it you know i hopped on it and immediately fell in love but again just the nature of my ability to train is was non-existent between work and so i basically just went out there you know tried moves i wasn't doing terribly on it but to put it together you just had you just need a bit more endurance and i needed to put just apply myself a little more um so that's the thing i'd like to do um no joke it's because i might have to leave the country oh shit <laughs> that's kind of a real thing um, dang Trump has broken the immigration system. So my visa was really long to renew. And just like all of a sudden, we realized like all this thing we've been building here, we might just have to leave because the visa doesn't get renewed or my wife won't be able to work or, you know, all kinds of hellish things. So Damn. since then, my work visa has been renewed, although I haven't got the official paper yet. And dude, like if in November Trump gets reelected or starts a civil war, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh and so it came down to like, well, I'm coming if I with have you. to. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> we'll, we'll make space for you. There's great climbing in France. Don't worry. <laughs> Lots of people to interview. Interesting. <laughs> um, but it just occurred to me, like, oh man, I will have lived, you know, in the Pacific Northwest for you know basically the best part of eight years, and I won't have done like these cool, amazing routes that were just like right there. Mm. And that bummed me out a bit. And I was like, all right, well, let's get it done then. So <laughs> it's kind of a grim motivation, but <laughs> whatever, yeah. because the time was available. And so, so yeah, things are looking better now. And, Good. and if I do that, I have some other projects that, you know, could be cool. Um, so we'll see one thing at a time. Okay. Like I said, I'm doing it in levels. So if I can, get out of level two then you know i'm 43 so and i have a two-year-old a nine-year-old and a full-time job so it's uh in the climbing industry which is not good for your personal climbing <laughs> so i'm yeah. cautiously op optimistic i'll be rooting for you thank you <laughs> <laughs> what are, what are you up to what are you what are you getting yourself into these days i am uh, i'm still in 10 sleep I'm here for yep. less than a week. I committed to being in rifle on October 1st, yep. um, which is kind of a loose commitment. I could probably push it back if I really needed to, um, need, need in air quotes. I just have two more routes here that I'm hoping to do. Yeah, I'm extremely close on one. I basically got the pre-send the last session. I fell on a, a move up high that I didn't think would be an issue from the ground, but live and learn. Why and then, did you fall? It uh, it it is actually harder than, it's not quite the red point crux like it, but it also, it wasn't quite a punt either. Like it's definitely hard, and I think I expected I would get more back at this rest that turned out to be pretty mediocre, from the okay. ground. So, had you not? Oh, okay, you'd never gotten up to that rest before. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So is it, there's like one short hard section right off the rest, and I kind of mm -hmm. I didn't think. Yeah, on all the links from the rest of the top, that had never been an issue, but okay, it's a little more of a sting than I expected, and 
But yeah, so that one, and then another one that's a little bit more of a reach, but it went really well my last session, and I sent from, or I linked it from the third bolt to the top. Okay. Um, the bottom's pretty hard, but not crazy. I have to add like eight moves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think I can do the first one. The second one's a little bit more of a question mark. And, you know, it, if I get extremely close the day before I'm supposed to leave, I might call my friend and <laughs> <laughs> gauge things. But I mean, that's that's climbing mythology right there. Mm-hmm. The better one is what do you need to do the route, to do that particular route? Mm. That's the question. Yeah. See, see how this works. <laughs> uh-huh. It's just about asking the right question. I'm sorry, I'm not. I don't mean to, to pry. No, not right not now. at all, not at all. I'm like, hmm. I wonder if he has bandwidth for a fourth fourth coaching client. <laughs> but yeah, then on on. I mean, you know, if I don't get this thing done and I need to move on, I'm going to rifle. It's gonna be awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, that that sounds amazing. To finish off, I have a request. Okay. One of my beefs with climbing media is this overemphasis on training. Okay. And uh, I'm really like super interested and excited, and but. I was listening to Jonathan Segrist, for instance, and you talked about training a ton. Like, what is the protocol, the reps, the da-da-da? And it was mentioned, but in a way that, you know, maybe it's very easy for people doing who don't know climbing so well to ignore the fact that Jonathan climbs, like, basically 200 days a year outside, mm-hmm. and I'm probably being conservative. And that's probably the reason he's as good as he is. Mm-hmm. It's much, you know, not to say that his training doesn't work and is not effective and, you know, yeah, like, you know, Instagram has done a lot of damage with that and people's perception of what climbing is or expanding on it is like, because every single gym has like a bunch of hangboards and a moon board and a this and a that. And it's, you know, when you're a V2 climber, that's the last place you should be. (laughs) But at the same time, those people are listening to you and they're listening to Jonathan and they hear a two and a half hour podcast about these like micro details of like, you know, crimping and how do you hold this and how do you, and it becomes disproportionately important. Mm -hmm. And it's not that it's not interesting. It really is. And I was like super excited, but at the same time, it, you know, it's kind of lopsided with the fact that Jonathan's literally like probably the best red point climber top five ten red point climbers in the world because he climbs so much rock he's a good climber because he climbs a lot mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. not because he trains this way or you know the training helps his climbing to be amplified or he sharpens his knife that way um and it's it's a trend you know training is popular it's easy to talk about it's quantifiable it's um don't stop talking about it just make sure you're, you know, the the best way to become a better climber. Everybody, every coach will tell you this, is to climb more, you know. And especially with, you know, gyms and plastic. I see people come to our gym and they're like, man, they spend more time, you know, hanging. And I saw V2 climbers doing weighted, weighted pull-ups the other day. 
you know, they did no idea what they were doing. They were hanging everything wrong and they were on, everything was a disaster. And I'm, you know, I was just like, why are you doing this? And it's like, oh yeah, my fingers are, I read this to Steve Petrol, da, da, da. and it's, it's terrible because they're like, they're really good sources of information, mm. but how people are absorbing it is not, you know, um, and a lot of injured people in climbing gyms because they're doing the wrong thing. A lot of people, you know, not enjoying like just being sitting at the foot of the moon board, completely depressed because they can't do their whatever workout. So just make sure uh, if you could, it's a request, uh, just, mm -hmm. uh, sort of emphasize and amplify with all of these people. Uh, Mike Doyle was the same, you know, we as high end climbers who understand that, you know, we're talking about training in the context of, I already climb 200 days a year, but that context gets lost on a lot of people. Mm. Well, that's, uh, yeah. Thank you for that. And I will definitely take that to heart. No, that's great insight. Yeah. Because same with, you know, uh, Bill Ramsey, we talked for hours about his training, but I hung out, I was in the red at the time that Bill Ramsey was like, you know, climbing and that dude climbs a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and he's also a very good climber. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so a lot of things are, a lot of boxes are ticked before he gets on the tread wall for two and a half hours or, <laughs> you know, spends, you know, 19 hours in a row training. And it's quite easily overlooked because it fits in the sentence, you know, and then I'll try my proj. Mm. That's the, the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. And then you launch back into like, well, then I eat this and then I, and, you know, you have, we have, I'm dealing with a crowd of V4 climbers that I'm trying to get engaged and passionate and learn movement and excited about climbing and as soon as they hit the slightest wall, they're looking for which protein shake they need or which, you know, fingerboard regimen they need. And, and I've advocated for my gym to get rid of all the fingerboards. Oh, wow. Dude, 85% of the climbers, and I'm being conservative, probably it's closer to 90% of the people who climb in commercial climbing gyms climb V4 and under. Hmm. Right? So these are the people you're talking to is a massive bulk of people who are super psyched because they've, you know, engaged with this thing and they're finding resonance and echoes with the fitness industry because reps and protocols and protein shakes and all of those, that language is similar. So they can have, they can reuse all the cool accessories they already bought. And they you know, they're like, Oh yeah, this is my workout. This is my, this, but climbing so much cooler and, it's a side effect and people need to play more. Mm. They need to, uh, climbing needs to be fun for the first five years you do it. Don't fucking train, just climb and have a good time and enjoy it. And don't project, go to the crag and just try fun stuff that you can do quickly. That is literally the best way to progress, you know? So because you're one of the points where, you know, there's kind of a, an outward funnel because you're, you know, sharing, these voices i thought it could be cool to have those ideas kind of on your radar totally yeah the, like the weight of training in the conversations around climbing and you know you listen to these podcasts for hours and hours and like you don't hear people say i fucking love climbing you know or i <laughs> you know or and expand on that and what it means to them and and i think uh, there's a bunch of people who need to hear that i don't you know, you don't, but there's a bunch of people who we are producing 
as climbing gyms and as an industry, as you know, I'm sure people from listening to your podcast maybe might get into climbing because you do a really good job. So it's cool to communicate a, a good message. Sorry, that was a bit longer no, than thank I intended. You. Thanks for that. <laughs> I do want to. I will say, I um, when we when we finished the episode, I just left my equipment going. So <laughs> so I have recorded all this, and I okay. absolutely will not publish anything that we talked about after we finished without without running it by you first. Sure. Um, but I think I will listen through this and see if I want to somehow incorporate some of that because there was some really good stuff in there. Yeah. So whatever bits are. It's all fair game for okay. the most part. So, yeah, if anything feels a little weird, just you can send me the little tidbit and I'll okay. let you know. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Yeah, I, like, I, almost pa- I almost turned it off a couple times and I was like, damn, I don't know. <laughs> this is really good. But, yeah, if, if nothing else, this last half an hour, just for my own reference, I will definitely, uh, yeah. I'll definitely hold on to it. And I Thanks think maybe there's a there's a... It would be cool if there was like an opportunity. I always hoped it would be CWA, you know, a place for us to exchange these ideas among professionals Mm. about, you know, what type of media we're sharing, what type of impact we're having and how we can improve that, you know, where are places we can make small adjustments. And so, and I stew on these ideas so much. And then when I get a tiny opportunity to talk about it, it all comes flowing out. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, i was i was about to say goodbye and i was like oh by the way <laughs> so but yes again thank you thank you for your work and i will let you go to bed because it's later for you than it is for me <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure tande thank you so much and um i look forward to talking to you again soon all right have a great night and good luck on the projects thanks thanks yeah you too <laughs> bye bye good night <laughs>